Hello and welcome to episode 79 of WB40, the weekly podcast with me, Matt Valentine and Chris Weston. Well, hello and welcome to another episode then. And um, we've got a treat for everybody this week, I think. Matt, a real treat, an absolute gem in as much as it's 40 minutes of you and I. We haven't got an interview this week. I know. People must be so excited about that. I know I am. <laughs> you don't have to look like that when you say that. We um, no, it's been a while since we haven't had an interview. It's been a couple of weeks, hasn't it? So um, people will be itching to hear the, the yin and the yangs. Yeah, yin and yang in wit and wisdom. But unfortunately, you tune into WB40. So what can we say? Um, how has your week been? Uh, my week has been a very busy week, and my and this week also continues to be a busy week. Um, having great fun working on various uh, things, uh, including continuing the uh, cryptocurrency odyssey, which I recommend to everybody. So, have you actually launched Chris Coin yet? Oh, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? I I could launch a, a coin which allows people to invest in me without diluting any of my own personal share capital. Sounds like a thing I can't really lose, can I? Uh. Yeah, probably not. Um, that's good. I don't know if you've seen, there's been the uh, Microsoft Ignite conference, I think it is, where they, they launch new things in a kind of Apple-esque way. And the one in the US. That's the one. And um, it has been interesting today that the one that's got all the coverage is a new uh, feature within uh, Microsoft Teams that means that if you're on a video call, your background is blurred out, so I wouldn't be able to see that shirt that's hanging from the coat hanger behind you at the moment which i can see on google hangouts i just find it fascinating that it's um i've got no idea what else has come out of ignite but all i know is that they now do automated bocker because that's the technical term for blurry back but yeah bocker b-o-k-e-h is bocker although microsoft don't refer to it as bocker which i think is a shame um and that but that is the the level that we are now at with functionality of modern collaboration tools is it does it enable you to be able to hide your pants in the background of the shot but the thing that i'm finding really interesting about it is that you can see i was sort of chatting with a few people on twitter today you can see when they'll start to use augmented reality stuff to put you in business clothes appropriate to the meeting that you're having yeah, um, that's good. I like that. And then it goes downhill from there, as uh, as somebody pointed out on Twitter. Yeah, and then there'll be a malfunction, and everybody can see that you're having your conference call naked. And the, the consequences of all of this are, are perfectly terrifying. No, it's, I think I think that's a good thing. I mean, I I am worried actually about the idea of trying to run such a, a tool on my computer because it could, it's barely powerful enough to hold a video conference without trying to do some clever pre-processing on the background video before it sends it to you. Um, but also, I do think that that you know that you could run that kind of deep fake stuff, couldn't you? Essentially, you could turn yourself into any creature or, or or film star or whatever just by a flick of a switch. It could be I could be talking to Trevor McDonald, uh, and there'd be a new level of dignity and respect that uh, would be afforded. <laughs> That's certainly missing at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I like that. I like I like that idea. I mean, that that that's a. Yeah, that that isn't a very pleasant uh, thing that I've got hanging up there, but it's what I. <laughs> that's why that's why I lived in my office. I'm not I'm not broadcasting from my wardrobe, you know. I'm really I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just that idea. As you touched on it there, though, there's something I find a little bit creepy. The just on the edges of how we're going to start to see video 
being basically, um, well, being used as a tool of deception live. <laughs> and that that is that's a very slippery slope we're on the edge of there i think oh you know well, people take selfies don't they and, and i gather that on the uh on the modern uh mobile mobile telephones there are tools that allow you to whiten your teeth and to you know remove unsightly blemishes like your face and all that kind of thing on a, on a selfie they're a kind of beauty beautifying things aren't they the tools i gather yeah there are <laughs> not, that I, not that i need or need or want to use one of them but to, I, gather, I gather for vain people but there they are yeah there's or a limit ugly, there's a limit to what people. yeah limit to what technology is able to be able to do at the moment chris being vain either vain or ugly i, I don't have no need for these things but i imagine that uh, for some people they're very 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 useful i mean imagine oh i don't know imagine theresa may doing it would be it, it would be a a boon, wouldn't it, for, for somebody like the Prime Minister to have a, a beautifying app? And if you could do it with a video, absolutely, you wouldn't need to comb your hair, you wouldn't need to do anything. You'd just turn on the beautification app and there you'd be talking like a the avatar that you selected, the, 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 per, the perfect professional presenter that you, you know you wanted to be. So, true story. Um, uh, earlier in the year my wife and I both needed to be able to get new passports and there's a actually very very good online service now from passport office in the UK for being able to do your passport application soup to nuts as a completely digital thing and that includes being able to upload the photos and you can upload the photos as long as you've got a relatively plain background from a mobile phone you don't have to go to snappy snaps to pay 10 quid or something to be able to get four uh, pictures of you looking miserable Anyway, so we uh, took the photo and uploaded it and it took a couple of goes because there's a sort of validation algorithm thing on it. And then we got a photo that uh, that worked for my wife and she said, can we try, is there anything you can do to make me look a bit younger? So we went through the, the app that's on the phone I've got, which enables you to be able to, you know, smooth it out, do a bit of Photoshop. Nothing extreme, just a bit of light surface work. And it rejected it. And that was so funny. Um, I shouldn't laugh at these things, but it really, really made me laugh. Um, oh, dear, mate. I, I hope your wife never listens to this episode and finds out that you, you've described her as needing some light surface work. <laughs> yeah, I think we can be fairly certain that this isn't on her playlist. <laughs> Very sensible lady. Anyway, um, on with the show. And uh, I think we should start with a little bit of yin-yang. So absolutely right. Let's uh, let's kick off with yin and yang. I always worry about kicking off with yin and yang because I think the people once they've heard yin and yang will just turn the rest off because the best bit's gone. But maybe not in this case. I'm sure we'll keep people engaged. Um, we're doing a bit of a double hander this week rather than uh, both uh, somebody picking both. So you, Matt, you've got a a yin of your own, a yin that's uh, that's caught your eye this week. Yeah, I have. Um... Never let it be said that I'm not willing to uh, open up criticism on any technology provider because I will. And uh, Google, um, actually, there's, a, there's there's two things that Google have done in the last week uh, that have annoyed me greatly. The first is um, they've announced that the inbox uh, product, which is an alternative email client, uh, is being discontinued next year. And inbox. Um, it's been around for what, a couple of years now and they've done some really interesting things about trying to make email 
more fit for purpose and not many people have adopted it. Uh, I have initially using the mobile apps, which worked really well. And then as I got to experience them on the mobile apps, I then sort of migrated across on the, the web browser stuff. And there's just simple stuff in there about being able to acknowledge that email is used often as a kind of task management tool. So you can easily be able to use the emails to be able to trigger um, reminders and mark things as done or just really simple stuff that is actually very good and the other side of it is it's also got a whole bunch of things that bring things that you haven't dealt with to your attention so if there's an email that you've received that looks like it should have some sort of response to it two or three days after you've received it and haven't done anything it will pop it back into the top of your inbox to be able to say you haven't done anything with this do you want to reply oh, really? to whatever it's really really useful because as somebody who uh, saw inbox um, and but never could be bothered to figure out what to do with it. Um, I have noticed that feature make its way into normal Gmail recently. Yeah, and they've started to bring stuff into Gmail, but I've, I've on finding out that it's being discontinued, I've switched back to Gmail, and they've made quite a lot of changes to the main client, but um, it, it just feels uh, just very cluttered in comparison to what they've done with Inbox. The actual whole uh, user interface... I think was greatly smoothed out with what they did with inbox and um i mean this is this is the nature of the beast that sometimes they will you know run products and then stop them but it's really 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 frustrating when you do actually get to a point where you like the product and they decide to stop it so and then um announcements that uh or not even announcements stuff that has sneaked out over the last uh 24 hours or so which is about Chrome, and you can log into Chrome. You can use your Google identity to log into Chrome, and it's something I do, and it's really, really handy because it means that you can uh, get synchronization of things like passwords across your um, uh, browsers on multiple devices. You can synchronize history. You can yes, pull a whole lot of it. Really, really, really useful. But lots of people don't do it because it's a bit of a pain in the backside. Um, and so to be able to address that, I'm reading into this, um, from version 69 of Chrome, you will automatically be logged into the browser if you log into a Google service in the browser. And they haven't told anybody about this. And that's a bit crap, um, to say the least. There's a whole bunch of security implications of that that are really quite concerning there's still not i've not seen really deep information about exactly what's going on with it but it it's just one of those things again where um engineers second guessing what it is that people want to do and having the power to be able to do it and basically not being able to think about whether it's a good idea or not yeah that is it, that is a bit i mean I, i'm trying to think about times when i wouldn't want to be logged into a browser but Probably if I was using somebody else's computer, or you know, if I was logged into a, um, a service on a on a shared computer, and I wanted to log onto my email, but I didn't want, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want to log into the browser and have all of that stuff hoovered up onto that that machine. Then, yeah, I, I don't see it as it's a very useful thing. And it's also it sustains on the device in a way that I don't know if it's possible to be able to remotely log out of a browser at the moment you can log out if you've got sessions running on another computer and you've left them running on say you know your, your friend's computer or whatever you can remotely say terminate that session so it's logged out and you know it's logged out i don't know if it's possible to do that with an entire browser or not um 
but it just it it's one of those things where actually you 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 can relatively lightly go into a browser and do something and then come out of it again especially if you've got two factor authentication or whatever there shouldn't be any issues with it but then remaining logged into the device or even having a profile on that device so anyway there's my uh, double yin of the week um google think about what you're doing anyway um that brings us to the uh the yang and um you you've found something that i think can be described as digital archaeology it's a fascinating thing tell us about it this is internet gold this this is why i even look at the internet and it's um it's a site called teletext archaeologist so if you cast your mind back to the years before the internet really existed and um before we uh well i guess it existed in in some obscure way but we didn't really the world wide web didn't it. exist i think that's yeah that's right and um I don't know whether you remember the the deep, deep joy and excitement of watching um, uh, cricket scores updating on Teletext and um, uh, waiting and hoping for the next refresh to show an update of of people having scored runs but a wicket not have fallen. That, to me, that was excitement. I used to to sit there uh, just on tenterhooks waiting for the update. And then football, you'd watch the football on a Saturday, find out who, you know, the favourite page would refresh and somebody else would have scored. It's a brilliant way to uh, spend it, spend your time when you had a lot of time to spare you know, as a young man. Um, so Teletext was remarkably important to me because it was just a way of learning so much without having to move off my bum. I could sit in front of the TV and learn all sorts about the world, what was going on. I could do business news. There was um, uh, music reviews, all this brilliant stuff. You could just, just hoover up. So I was... Um, uh, this thing came uh, past my attention the other day, and it was it's called Teletext Archaeologists. And what they're doing is they must have some equipment that I haven't I haven't really looked into it enough to know what sort of equipment they have. But they've got equipment whereby they can take um, videotape and hoover up the Teletext signal from the videotape, which is um, fantastic. And then they process it all somehow. And then they put it onto a um, archive, and you can click on the archive. And generally, what it will say is it'll be a channel. So it might be BBC One or BBC or Channel Four or one of the one of the ITVs, as it was then, because of course we got we used to have more than one ITV and a date. And then there you go. You just type in the numbers. And I was just realised that once upon a time on Teletext on Channel Four there used to be IT jobs. So. I'm currently looking at a page that's got, um, it's page 641 of uh, Channel 4 Teletext, 19th of June, 1995. And you can get a job, um, West London, Novell, Lanham 1, £25,000. Devon, Visual Basic, Analyst Programmer. Do you remember Analyst Programmer? £18,000 a year, just one year experience. That's all you want, Visual Basic. There wasn't much Visual Basic around in 1995, let's face it. Or you could get a... Um, West London, two years, seeing Unix, £22,000. It's no end to it, is there? It, it's a fascinating, it's, it's a beautiful thing, actually. When you first um, mentioned it to me, I thought it was just going to be static pages. But the way they've been able to recreate the loading is just brilliant. And they've obviously, because the way Teletext was carried, it was encoded in a strip at the top of the screen. Sometimes if you get tracking problems on your video, you'd be able to see it. 
and there's like kind of QR codes flashing across the top. There you go. That will make it relevant to the youth of today. Like QR codes. Um, and so the thing was that because it was at the top, it was quite hard work for video players to be able to render it back because VHS was one of the most incredibly complicated inventions with spinning heads and sort of shards of data going across. It's a remarkable thing. Um, and the Teletext stuff was usually just mangled. So how they've been able to get this from Commoner Garden VHS is quite a, quite a feat. And what a labour of love to be able to um, recreate this stuff. And I think it's just... It is really interesting, the idea of how we preserve some of these digital things. We've already seen kind of two or three generations of... Uh, digital technology within our lifetimes and in the way that a book that will sit on my shelf beside me here which I would have bought 40 years ago still is utterly usable there ain't any of the cassettes that I bought for the BBC Micro there aren't any of the three and a half inch floppy disks that I had for the Atari ST or for the uh, the early PCs that I had there are none of the there's none of it none of it exists or even if it does exist, you know, I found a box of three-inch discs the other day. Um, I, I went to my parents and had a bit of a clear out, and it was there was a box of three-inch discs that I used to use for my Teton Einstein. And I'm sure if I took those discs out, because they were very robust, those discs, I don't know if you remember the three-inch ones, but they were very, very solid. I bet you if I put them into a three-inch disc drive, they'd still work, but I haven't got a three-inch disc drive. Sometimes it's not the media that's the problem, it's the fact that there aren't any devices on which to play yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so anyway, check it out. We'll put a link on the website. But um, Teletext Archaeologist is, I think, possibly the best thing we have yet found in yin and yang. We're going to talk a little bit tonight about a, a, a type of project, a type of project that um, has a almost a life of its own. Um, it's something that uh, it, it, I was... What made me think of this for this show was I was reading some below-the-line comments on some some torrid story about the disaster that is going on at the moment that is the Brexit negotiations. And it was an old computer programmer who was saying about how they've been involved in many projects over the years where they've basically developed a life of their own and people carry on doing them even though nobody is left involved in the running of the project knowing either why they're doing it, what the purpose is or how the hell they can make it stop. And I think we've all been there. Um, and it uh, just struck me as a, a very interesting thing to look at in terms of uh, what's going on with Brexit. But we're not going to talk about this in terms of Brexit. We're going to talk about it in terms of these kind of zombified projects. And actually, rather than uh, talking of them as zombie projects, we're going to call them Bernie projects. And the reason for that is because of a parallel you drew when we were chatting about this with one of the um, mediumly good 80s teen comedy films from our youth. Was it really the 80s? Yeah, it really late was. 80s, late 80s or maybe, you know, whatever, whatever it was. So, no, I, I, this is something I came up with when I was working on... Well, actually, I wasn't working on it. I worked on this project for a while, and, I, and then I moved away to do something else in this business. Um, but it was quite clear to me that even when this project had started, that it was going to really struggle to get any real traction in the business. 
just because of the culture of the business, I could understand why people wanted to do it. I was less convinced of the method being employed to do it. And when we started to look at the terms of reference, I thought it was pretty much doomed. But I, I would say probably within three months to six months, it had died in as much as the benefits that had been expected for the project were, whilst relatively modest in any sensible organisation, were, were never going to be achieved. And a lot of the people that were needed to buy into it in order to deliver it had essentially checked out. So, But there was a lot of political capital invested in it. It was kind of, this is, you know, if I don't deliver this, then, you know, it's it's I'm putting my... I've put in my head on the line, uh, neck on the line for this, you know, all of this kind of thing from the top top brass. Um, but so after a while, as a kind of outsider to this, I would see people involved. And it was like Weekend at Bernie's, the film, where the the, the premise is that, that these guys go to, uh, they, they're invited to a some sort of... It's a beach house, isn't lodge it? Or or a beach yeah. house or something, that's right, yeah, by this, by this guy who ends up being killed... Um, in some bizarre um, mishap, um, but rather than and I, and I think he was the bad guy. So, but rather than to spoil their holiday, they decide to dress him up and pretend he's alive. So every time anybody anybody walks past, they'd be, you know, wait and they'd be waving his arm around on a piece of string or something to make make out he was he was alive. And that's how these projects are. There, there are too many people dependent on them being there to justify their existence or or as you, you know as i was saying not to not to sort of let this political capital expire so they have to keep animating this terrible corpse of a thing so let's um let's step through the the life cycle of a bernie project and there's an example i've got you've got the one uh, that you, you started to talk about there there's an example i've got of one which was um a big outsourcing project so it wasn't a development project it was about doing a big outsourcing deal for pretty much commodity it stuff um the starting point i think for a bernie project is when the original business case planning happens uh, and the the way in which business planning business case planning for all of these pseudoscience that's involved in it there is still a massive amount of uh, motivation for people to completely overinflate benefits, completely underestimate costs, and be able to get enough money invested up front to get the thing going without being ever really held accountable for those, how can we put this subtly, lies that go on early on. But why um, do they do that? It's worth It's worth just talking about why people do that, because... Sometimes, so take outsourcing as an example. People will want to get an outsourcing project done because A, they've fallen out with a person that's running the thing internally and they want to they want to prove a point by getting rid of them or showing that it can be done more cheaply by somebody else. Or, and I've seen this with IT directors and CIO types and, and procurement types, is that they want it on their CV that they've done it. They want, to be sure, they want to show that they've done a big outsourcing deal or they've done a big ERPM implementation. Or, yeah, no, we're not going to use that tier two ERP. We're going to use SAP because, actually, I want SAP implementation on my CV, thank you very much, because that'll be worth more to me in the future. It doesn't matter whether it's right for the company. And people make these choices and they're kind of, they're, they're seized of the absolute need to do it. The the third uh, reason I've seen, and this was the case in, in the 
the example I've got in mind is because somebody's been brought in uh, explicitly to do the thing and because of their past experience and are hugely massively incentivized to get that thing done. So um, that is, yeah, that's when you've got somebody who's complete, um, uh, yeah, livelihood is on the basis of doing the thing that they've been brought in to do. Now, before that, there was this sort of vague inkling of we should do the outsourcing. And then it was only when the person was brought in that the planning started. But obviously, there'd been seeds laid outside of the technology community way before in that particular instance that that led to delights later so the project is set up with um what turn out to be totally overinflated expectations of of what they will deliver um i think there's another question there which is is business successful business planning a matter of retrospective luck uh and given the uh the role that circumstance will play in any big project being a success or not i think that you can't dis discount the amount that luck has to play and of course is never really factored into any business case planning um and you get i know that'd be terrible you do get some um uh, business case processes these days that will involve uh having a kind of worst case scenario type plan um but even those i mean i, I saw one in government recently where i think that the the worst case was uh, something like only 20% of the expected benefits. And when you know that there have been projects in the public sector and private sector for that matter, where the expected benefits have been uh, a massive negative multiplier, and you think of the the big NHS disaster, the however many billion were lost on that, um, the, 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 the opportunity for downside... Uh, being explored properly is still kind of negated away by the idea that everybody's in a positive mood because we want to get this project to happen and i understand that because if you don't have that positive mood to get the project to happen no project will ever happen ever um but once That's right we- but you if you take the, like a sporting analogy it's really important if you've got two teams say you've got fa cup final day you know and it's a sunny day in may um these days you you wouldn't get on the pitch unless you got some you know happy clappy sports psychologists and everybody's absolutely convinced they're going to win you know what i mean both sides are going and they're going to win there's no doubt about it they have got you know they're out there they're going to win well just guess what <laughs> at the end of the game somebody isn't going to win that is life that is how it works doesn't mean that they didn't believe they were going to win enough or they didn't want to win enough it's just how it works and sometimes it can be it can be bad luck can't it you know in a game of football because it can be settled by one with the odd goal or whatever, a bit of bad luck can, can send you the wrong way. And we've all been in projects where, you know, that maybe have taken too long or cost too much or just failed. And at the end, people will say, well, do you know what? We did have some bad luck. You know, this there was a, you know, absolutely a malware attack halfway through this, you know, the rollout and it delayed everything or you know, there, was a, there was an acquisition or there was something that happened which we couldn't have foreseen and therefore that was bad luck. And in the same way that, you'll see plenty of sporting teams say, you know, it was a great game, we played very well and, you know, um, Jono did a brilliant job in goal or whatever it was and they'll say also, but you know what, and we had a bit of luck and some of the bounces went our way and they'll, they'll accept that they had that luck. I wonder how many business projects say, do you know what, we were a bit, you know, to be fair, we had a bit of luck and that, that helped us to the end. Doesn't, you know, people aren't that, 
they don't think in those terms often do they? no they're not that gracious generally not many people's cvs say um lucky and then maybe they should uh, maybe <laughs> they'd be a bit more honest well so, it's like those uh, recruiters that say um i've got a thousand cvs to look through so i'm going to slide the first half into the bin and uh yep, those people are unlucky and you wouldn't want to employ an unlucky person would you you know that's that's just the way it works I think suddenly that's that's just actually made sense of most uh, modern recruiting. But there we go. So, uh, what are the sorts of things that then take us into from being a uh, a, a project that has high expectations, um, but uh, uh, well, a project that has high expectations and then turns into a project that has this no quick wave his arms, pretend he's still alive. Um, one of the things for me, I think, and we've sort of touched on it already, you do get unforeseen events happening that mean that the nature of the project is just changed irrevocably. Um, so uh, the, in, in the outsourcing example, uh, on the, uh, the, the day before the outsourcing agreement was going to be announced, it was announced that the entire organisation was about to be acquired by a third party. Um, and the the deal was signed anyway because everything was in pain and somebody had some big bonuses to be able to make sure that that deal happened. Um, but it was obviously about to get delivered into a completely different organisation in a completely different way, and th- that was the trigger point. Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, organisations' objectives can change, can't they? And and outside influences can happen. You can. You can work for two years, and people still do this, don't they? They work for two years on a new product launch, only to find, you know, after 18 months that the need for that product's gone away because somebody's invented something completely different. And those things are, you know, they are they are bad luck in many ways, or they're, you know, they're poor, poor design or whatever. The, the, the one I worked on, the, part of the problem was that the business culture wasn't, it, it didn't want this change it didn't meet the individual objectives of people in the business. So they would say, well, do you know what? This is all, this is not going to happen. And whilst they would pay lip service to it, they would have their own businesses to run. And of course, you know, within the big, within the bigger business. So the project team would say, we need somebody to come and work from your business to come and work on this thing. You've got somebody who's a, a who owns a part of that business, who, who manages a part of that business who isn't really that well bought into it. So who do they send? Do they send their brightest, best people who are, you know, making a great job of that business? No, they do not. They do not send those people. They send other people, people who are not necessarily going to <laughs> make a, a big difference to the project in a positive way. They're the people they they can do without, frankly, and that's the problem. Yeah, and the uh, being able to then spot when a project has got to a point where. Not only do stakeholders outside not buy into it, but the stakeholders inside don't buy into it because the what's happened is the people who got the business case through and the people who had the motivation for why this is a good idea for one reason or another, and this might be another one of those kind of black swan events, but it might also be that people get to a certain point. You do get people whose focus is on getting business cases through and then they go off and do something else. Um, I've always been amazed by that and then thinking, well, how on earth do you expect anybody to then follow through on the thing that somebody else was the motivated one to get 
approval for. Happens um, in sales. People do bids. Yeah, and, it's, it's, yeah, absolutely. And swan off to do another bid. Um, but that you then end up with a, a management structure within a project that hasn't... They're there because they're professional project managers, not because they really care about the project. Absolutely. And in this particular case, you had lots of people working on that project who were not the brightest buttons in their particular area that had sent them to join in this project. So the area that was uh, was now rid of these uh, dullards was quite happily working away. And these dullards would realise, because they, they might not be very good at their job, but they're not daft, they would realise that one of the best ways to keep themselves employed is to make sure this project does not fail. So it, it is, or rather, keeps going for as long as possible. So it's in their interest to report progress and to report that things are going well, even if they're not, because it keeps them in a job for another week or another month or another year. And I think in projects I've seen where there's been high levels of contract staff involved, this gets even worse because you have people who aren't thinking beyond the end of their next contract and are trying to be able to milk as much time as they possibly can out of the contract that they're currently on and so therefore aren't doing their job properly because they're not at any point saying, this is a crock. And if you go into any of those project rooms or project teams or whatever it might be on a Friday afternoon about four o'clock and nobody's there, you know you are you are dealing with just that sort of uh, culture. Everybody's just decided that it's a, it's just something to keep them occupied. So how do these things ever end? What are the trigger points that actually mean that at, at some point somebody says no, enough <laughs> is enough? Well, the corpse starts to smell, doesn't it? <laughs> That's the problem. It becomes the point where... Even people who have seen, you know, they, they fear that actually this, this might be a corpse, but it suits their purposes to suspend their disbelief. Um, they realise that they can't do it anymore. They're just going to have to do the, the thing they really don't want to do and peer into it. But when they do, they know they're going to see something they don't want to see. And that's often a point where, um, I, I mean... It, it's the, it's the political capital bit, isn't it? I think that is the thing that sustains these things for so long, that there is, as long as there are people around an organisation who at some point publicly said that they were part of it, that's that's the, the kind of the, the half-life that goes on of the credibility of a product. But for as long as there are people around who still feel that they might be politically damaged by the project ending, well, that's true. Now, let me give you an example, right? Okay, so I left the, this company um, many years after this project started, and it was still going on. Uh, no reason why it should have been. Uh, and it, but it was one of those companies. So before I left, I'd um, started to forward my emails to my personal uh, email account, to my Gmail account, just so that I got a record of what was going on, really. Um, and after I left, although my email account was turned off any email that was sent to me still got forwarded on by some bizarre internal outlook nonsense uh, exchange nonsense that meant that i still get emails now frankly if somebody's still got that uh, email address on a, on a crappy mailing list i still get emails forwarded on from their service so i would occasionally get these updates from this project and i noticed over the years that the just about anything that happened in the business, which was positive, was was put into one of these um, these updates on this project. It was nothing to do with the project, so it was kind of a gentle drift away from the original objectives, off to maybe more achievable objectives, and therefore, after everybody's forgotten why the reason they started this for in the first place, 
people can say, oh, that was quite good, wasn't it? Yeah, we achieved quite a lot, even though uh, it's like it's like Bernie stops appearing completely. We've stopped talking about Bernie himself and just more about the, the essence of Bernie and the Berniness of things. And to the point where Bernie now doesn't have to appear anymore. They don't have to wave the, wave the corpse around because, you know, it was only ever a concept. And and that's, if you can get away with it, I think, as a, as a terrible <laughs> company, uh, terrible project leader, sponsor, whatever it is, that's the way to do it. It's just just drift drift the objectives off to, onto one side until everybody's forgotten what the original point was. Now, of course, in these days of failing fast, these kind of projects obviously never happen anymore. But um, I think it is it, it's it's interesting that an awful lot of this is nothing about uh, mechanics or process or any of the rest of it. Everything to do with people, relationships, politics, culture, and that the the nature of how an awful lot of effort and resource can be put into uh, something that very soon people realise is never going to deliver, but people carry on with it, come what may. Um, there's definitely something that can be learnt from that, and maybe that politicians at the moment could be learning from as well. Yeah, I think just be aware. I think everybody should be aware when they see the dead man dressed up. It's uh, it's time it's time to move on. So um, there's another vague parallel, if you want to be able to draw it that way, with the current shambolic state of politics in the country. Uh, and that's um, a book you've uh, stumbled across uh, all about the art of persuasion. Yeah, that's right. So this is being written by a chap in the wider network called Bob Haywood, and um, it's a book about persuasion. And he is re- he's released the kind of first... Um, 70 odd pages of it uh, before it is released onto Amazon I think at the end of this week on the 28th it'll be 99p on Amazon for a short time so um, having skimmed through the first uh, few pages I'm, I quite like it I'm, I'm, um, I think I'm going to put some time into it so I thought maybe we would um, bypass the uh, randomizer uh, and uh, put it into our next uh, next uh, book pick since we're going to review the master algorithm next week and give everybody a chance to pick up um, a cheap book for a change and to have a look at this particular book and see what they think of it. Uh, I think it might be quite a, quite an interesting read. So uh, we'll put a link to that on the uh, the web page, wb40podcast.com. Uh, and so towards the end of the week, it will be available on Amazon for, for 99p. It's interesting. I think the, 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 the seminal text uh, of this uh, topic is uh, Robert Cialdini's uh, book, Influence, which is an absolutely fantastic book. Um, so... Uh, Mr. Hayward's got quite a lot to live up to, but we'll see how it goes. And uh, next week, then, uh, we will be reviewing The Master Algorithm, which is the current book club book, and then we'll uh, launch into this book about influence as the one next week. That's completely ruined all the schedule of this, but, you know, live a little, deal with ambiguity. That's the modern world. So there we go. Um... Another podcast complete, and we head into next week and the excitement and folder of the last week in September. Can you believe it? What are you going to be up to, Matt? Uh, I have got a day trip to uh, Birkenhead, 
and Warrington because I like to live beautiful parts of the world. Yeah. Um, actually, no, Birkenhead, to be fair, you've got a beautiful view out over the UNESCO World Heritage Site of Liverpool Harbour. Um, and then on Friday, I head up to Oxford for the weekend for the uh, Names Not Numbers conference, which I'm very excited about. Um, it's going to be uh, eclectic because that's what that conference is always about, eclecticism. And there's some fascinating people, including Charles Handy and uh, Jasmine Alibi-Brown and Matthew Dancona and uh, Martin Sorrell and the list goes on. So um, this is uh, Julia Hosbaum's um, big event. So, uh, yeah, that'll, that'll keep me entertained up until we record again. How about you? Well, how very exciting. Well, I'm going to the Northwestern tomorrow, in fact, and then I've got a couple of days uh, bumming around London doing various things. And, um, yeah, so it's going to be quite a busy week. Excellent. Uh, well, uh, be- between now and the next show, um, I hope uh, you have a enjoyable week. I hope that the winter thing doesn't get you down too much. And um, I look forward to uh, another WB40, episode 80, uh, next week. Can't wait. So that's it. Join us next week. Uh, you can find information about the Persuade book. You can find the yins and the yangs all over at wb40podcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at wb40podcast. And you can join our WhatsApp group if you send us a message and we'll let you join. It's great fun.